Hamilton in Federalist I said, the greatest danger to republics and the liberties of the people comes from political opportunists who begin as demagogues and end as tyrants, and the people who are encouraged to follow them. President Trump may not know a lot about the framers, but they certainly knew a lot about him. But at the end of the day, this is not just about Donald Trump or any individual. This is about our Constitution and abusing the impeachment power for political gain. They tell us that we have to have this impeachment trial, such as it is, to bring about unity. But they don't want unity, and they know this so-called trial will tear the country in half, leaving tens of millions of Americans feeling left out of the nation's agenda, as dictated by one political party that now holds the power in the White House and in our national legislature. Those were the voices of House impeachment manager, Congressman Jamie Raskin, and Trump lawyer, David Schoen, making their opening arguments on the first day of the Senate trial of the former president. Raskin and his two House colleagues gave a riveting performance, starting out by playing a gut-wrenching video of the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, interspersed with comments by Trump at the rally near the White House, telling his supporters to fight like hell, and tweets while the riot was going on, attacking his vice president, Mike Pence, for lacking the courage to do what he should have done to protect our country. And then, after a spectacularly disastrous performance by the first Trump lawyer to speak, Bruce Castor, the second Trump lawyer, David Schoen, recovered some ground by hammering the House Democrats for rushing the impeachment through with no investigation and no due process for the president. Just one more example, he said, of their determination to impeach Trump since the beginning of his presidency. But in the end, what difference, if any, did the arguments make? We'll discuss with two veterans of the first impeachment of Donald Trump, Norm Eisen, then an advisor to the House Judiciary Committee, and Robert Ray, one of Trump's former lawyers, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by the aforementioned uh, Norm Eisen and Robert Ray. Norm and Robert, welcome back to Skullduggery for both of you. Thanks. Great to be with you. Thank you. Nice to be back. Okay. So, uh, a little deja vu all over again for both of you. Once again, an impeachment of Donald Trump. I'd like to get your uh, you know, broad brush assessments of how the day went. And I can guess what you're going to say, Norm. So I'm going to start with Robert. Today was the preliminaries. It's sort of like the pre-game warm-up. I mean, I don't think anybody, based upon what we knew going in, seriously thought that the Senate was going to vote to dismiss this impeachment because it is unconstitutional. And whatever you think of the merit of that constitutional argument, I mean, all that happened today is that it perhaps changed one vote. But the long and short of it is that we're going to have a trial, but we're going to have a trial essentially over whether the president, the former president, can ever run for public office again. 
And I, I guess for that reason, thought that the strongest argument, which is both seems to me a structural constitutional argument and also one that ultimately will go to the merits uh, as we proceed through the trial, is that close to 75 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. It seems to me the height of arrogance, which is an argument that I think Marco Rubio has already made, Senator from Florida, that 50 senators plus 17 Republicans should be in the position of deciding really the only available question that remains, and that is uh, the provision of the Constitution that allows for a determination in the event of conviction uh, that the, uh, the, the convicted party uh, is barred from future federal office. That issue, you know, there's differing opinion about the constitutionality of that. Um, I, I guess I look at this thing really rather more practically. It's one thing to say that you want to bar, for example, a federal judge convicted from ever holding federal office again, or a former federal um, executive branch office holder. It's quite another entirely to apply that sanction to a president of the United States. It seems to me, structurally speaking under the Constitution, that's a judgment reserved to the people, to American voters, and not to the United States Senate. So I don't, you know, that's my view. I think that's the view shared by a lot of Republican senators. And I don't think what happened today is likely to change that outcome once we proceed through this trial, which hopefully will end sooner rather than later, uh, maybe as early as the end of this week, this weekend, or possibly early next week. Okay, Norm? Uh, well, um, I see things a little differently than my <laughs> really? friend, I'm shocked. Bob Ray. Um, if, uh, if, if this was like... Um, the uh, warm-up for a baseball game it was as one of those where the pitcher accidentally throws the ball into the third deck when he's warming up. Or maybe it was like spring training when they send you back into, you know, quadruple D league. I mean, th this, the, the house managers came ready for the major leagues. And um, um, Neguse, uh, Cicilline and above all Raskin, uh, they had thought deeply uh, about the constitutional question. But as we did in the first impeachment trial, and uh, uh, Bob will have to say whether this is accurate or not, although to continue our base baseball metaphor, he, he was a designated hitter. He wasn't there uh, every day of the trial. He did show up for prime time. Bob uh, had one of the coveted primetime slots, uh, the Reggie Jackson of Trump's defense team. Uh, the, um, to continue the, uh, the baseball metaphor, um, they had all the pitches in their arsenal. So they, they, they went right at the constitutional question, but then they threw a curveball. And, and I'll be curious if we, we seem to surprise in the last impeachment the trial team, when we also did this, we were supposed to have preliminary arguments about witnesses, but we made that into a preview of our entire case. And they did seem to, um, the president's lawyers that first day, I think were not expecting us to do that. Uh, Castor said that he was not expecting the House managers to do what they did today. And that, of course, was the video of the insurrection, arguing not the constitutional question alone, but weaving it in with the substance of the case. And the third, it's great for a pitcher if he has 
two pitches. But if you've got three money pitches in your arsenal, the third pitch was the emotion today that all three of those house managers brought, but particularly Raskin, um, uh, when he talked about in human terms what that insurrection meant to his family, uh, to uh, to his daughter and son-in-law who were there with him after their tragic, terrible loss of a child, of, of Raskin's uh, son, um, and 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 what that symbolized in terms of the Constitution uh, and the meaning of why we were there. So I, I thought it was an extremely effective performance by the managers, and I will just finally say that um, there are limits on who can serve as president. If you're born in a foreign country, you can't serve as president. If you're not of age, you can't serve as president. As president, And if you've committed a gross high crime and misdemeanor, like inciting insurrection, you are subject to disqualification in the Constitution. That is not anti-democratic. That is the essence of our republic. Donald Trump is totally unfit. And he should never be allowed to deface a ballot with his name again. We should have put him out the first time. You wouldn't have had those five deaths, 140 police maimed and injured, and the terrible devastation, uh, the damage to our democracy of this incitement of insurrection that went on for months. Bob, how can you countenance a demagogue of that kind? I'm not, look, I'm not addressing or countenancing the conduct, but if you feel so strongly about the fact that you, he should never grace a ballot again, there's an easy remedy. I mean, the, the House impeachment managers today focused on as if there's no remedy here to deal with this conduct in the, you know, in the January exception to the Constitution they kept referring. And I'm thinking to myself all along, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Once the president leaves office, there's a simple remedy. If you think this is so strong, then go ahead and prosecute Bob, it. Bob, Bob, hold on a second. You say, if you feel this is so strong, you saw what Trump said at that rally. You saw his conduct in the run up to that rally. You saw what he tweeted later in the day. If you feel so strong? How do you feel, Bob well, Ray, look, somebody who represented Donald Trump and said he should remain in office? How did you feel about his conduct that day? Look, I, I, I don't personally agree with the attorney, the former attorney general, that the president's conduct was a betrayal of office. But I will say that, you know, running a presidency on the edge of impeachment, and certainly now that it's happened twice, is no way to run a presidency. But, you know, that the judgment here ultimately is not for Norm Eisen or Bob Ray or anybody else to decide that uh, someone shouldn't be a candidate for office in the future. That's a judgment for all of the American people to make. And the only exception to that, it seems to me, is that if you again, if you think that a crime was committed here and, I, you know, I think, frankly, Democrats know that that's not really a remedy because I'm not sure that any prosecution under the statute that was charged in effect in the article of impeachment would ever get to a jury in a criminal case. I don't know most federal judges would allow this to, um, to actually proceed to a jury. Let me just follow up, Bob, on uh, you know, what you said before, saying that this was the, the, the height of arrogance uh, from, from 50 uh, Democratic senators. Oh, and, and that this the, and that the remedy is is is, you know, uh, you know, what the voters do. I, I don't understand that. Explain it because um, 
disqualification, as Norm uh, was saying before, is a uh, constitutionally sanctioned remedy. I mean, it's in there. So why why would it be in there um, if it was if that was it wasn't something that that in a situation of uh, you know a president committing high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, senators shouldn't avail themselves of. Well, it's also a remedy as, as a result of pro- successful prosecution well, under the sh- criminal law and under this particular statute, which would disable somebody from ever running for public office again. The question is, in this context, though, whether an impeachment should serve that function. I don't think anybody can argue the 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 point that the principal purpose of impeachment is removal from office. Now, you're trying to argue on the edge, on the constitutional edge here, about which there is some substantial doubt. You can do an impeachment while the president's still office and have a trial after he's left office and exercise then the only other available remedy, which is a bar from future public office. And as was, I think, the case before, and as is the case now, when when people have considered this issue, it seems to me that that's one of the problems here of, of that, particularly when it involves a president, is that you are preempting voters with regard to that issue. That is not a decision, frankly, I agree with Senator Rubio, that that is an arrogant arrogation of power. That is something that the preferred remedy is for the voters to decide that question, not not for 67 senators to decide that question, with all due respect. Um, Now, Norm, you say the principal goal here is to permanently bar Donald Trump from ever defacing a ballot again uh, with his presence. But look, um, you know, the Justice Department uh, has guidelines for bringing uh, indictments. And those guidelines say you only bring an indictment in which you have good faith reason to believe you can secure a conviction. We kind of know where this is headed given how the Republicans have already signaled. So the likelihood of a conviction here seems extremely low. And the the byproduct of another Trump acquittal in an impeachment, which is, seems to be where this is headed, regardless of the arguments, is it will only embolden Trump, it will only embolden his supporters, and make it more likely that Trump will be a part of our political life and even run for office again. So the argument could be made that this entire proceeding is counterproductive from the goal you said is the principal one of this entire proceeding. Um, Well, uh, fair questions. Um, And I know there was some weighing and balancing of those considerations as the House uh, thought about uh, what to do, Michael. I think they came to the right place in the end as a matter of uh, constitutional ethics. There was a high crime and misdemeanor. The law is clear uh, that the uh, founders aboard the idea of a president who would use a mob. I mean, it's so incredible to even have to articulate it. A president who would use a mob to try to hang on to power by attacking his own Congress and and vice president, for goodness sakes, uh, to disrupt the counting um, uh, of the electors. Uh, 
that, that is clearly, as a legal matter, a high crime and misdemeanor. Factually, I believe it's very well established. And, um, you know, when you, of course, those, the DOJ manual is talking about uh, charging criminal cases. You don't always, not every prosecutor believes, they have to believe that they can win. Just today, we saw another Republican come over. But th- you got one. The simple fact, you think got about one more the, than think you had about, last week. Think about the civil rights cases that were brought in the South. If you believe you have a righteous case, you have the facts and the law. If you believe that an honest jury should convict and disqualify the president, then you're in it's a matter of constitutional morality to do it, and it serves other purposes. Norm is right about that. that on that last point, you're right about that. Thank you. Thank well, you, what Bob. are those other okay. purposes? Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, lay, laying out a record. What, what are those? Okay, purposes? so here here are the purposes. And you were kind enough to have me on the show um, uh, when I I wrote my book about the last impeachment. I made the argument that um, you not only and this goes s- somewhat uh, to um, to Bob's analysis analysis earlier as well. You're not only arguing to the Republicans, you're arguing, as Bob calls upon us to do, and and he says uh, it's an or, I say it's an and, you are also arguing to the American people and you are inoculating the American people against even considering Donald Trump again. And as I wrote in my book, I thought our impeachment was an effective part, one of the stepping stones to America figuring out exactly who they had in the Oval Office and evicting him. So uh, another purpose is you're creating a record. People are gonna see, we've already had surprises today. I think that video surprised many in the Senate, in the courtroom, it moved people. Uh, The uh, Senator Cassidy flipping, that was a surprise. We'll have other surprises in the trial and we'll establish the record for the American people what happened. So there's none of this uh, denial, January 6th, insurrection denial, to go with the election or democracy denial uh, of the president and his enablers. Uh, so that is a purpose uh, as well. And and I think, you know, you say to America and to the world, we are a country that holds the powerful to account. No one is above the law. That message is important too. I could go on. Uh, this impeachment, this second impeachment is a righteous case, and we all know it. May I just say, you know, on the inoculation sure. point, I think, I think Norm is right about that. And it, of course, led me to an argument in the first impeachment trial, which was, you know, th- this isn't appropriate to impeach and remove the president from office in the final year of the president's term. That's a decision for the voters to make. The people of the United States will speak within 11 months Um, let them decide. And that's basically Norm's point. That was the argument that essentially, in some ways, I was forced into. (laughs) And I remember thinking at the time in the back of my mind, be careful what you ask for, you might get it. Uh, So, you know, that that, that is one of the consequences in terms of inoculation uh, of impeachment, which is not an insignificant uh, penalty. And I, I guess I would apply somewhat similar logic here you know, I, I think as an alternative, one that was at least briefly explored by Senator Tim Kaine and possibly uh, Sue Collins as well, was whether or not a censure would be the appropriate remedy. Now, it got a little bottled up because then Tim Kaine, I think, at the behest of Democrats, 
inserted the poison pill to the the censure, which was not it was censure plus. It was censure plus disqualifying the president under the 14th Amendment from ever holding federal public office again. And of course, Republicans answer to that is, well, we're not how we, how could we agree to that kind of a censure or accept that kind of a censure? And essentially, that's a, just a do around the two thirds conviction uh, supermajority vote that you would have to have as a result of impeachment in order to uh, be able to access the, the remedy of uh, uh, disqualification from future federal office. So I guess that censure went no place because it, 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 it got tagged with a with a poison pill along the way. But I, I just offer that is, you know, I think that's the kind of message you want to talk about inoculation for 2024 that would be an appropriate resolution of of of, of how to address the conduct here. Democrats keep suggesting that unless you proceed forward with an impeachment trial and the remedy of conviction uh, and the bar from future federal office, that there's nothing that you can do about this. And I respectfully disagree. You see, you have all kinds of weapons in the arsenal, one of which is censure. And of course, the other of which is if if it's appropriate, is prosecution since he's no longer in office. Um, I ha- we're running away with your show here, guys, but I have to I have to say <laughs> two things in response to that. It's a little bit of impeachment inside baseball, but if we can't do that this week, when can we do that? One, you'll note how carefully Bob is talking about um, his former client uh, and 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 what he does and does not think about the actual behavior. I noticed the same thing with his very, he, he bit off a very limited part in his primetime designated hitter appearance uh, in the last impeachment. And I always surmised, he, he won't be able to answer this, but I always surmised that like Ken Starr, the master of this was my friend, Ken Starr. You know, he talked about what he wanted to talk about. He talked about what he felt and he didn't talk about the other stuff in the prior impeachment. Uh, So that's one point. And then a second point that I wanted to make was I was a proponent of censure in the previous impeachment and actually schemed a little bit with Joe Manchin who wanted to do censure because censure would have had real bite in the last impeachment and would have infuriated Trump. The problem was there were only two people in that entire Senate chamber during the first impeachment who actually wanted a censure, me and Joe Manchin. And he could not get a single- (laughs) And and you didn't have a vote. (laughs) Uh, I certainly did not, but I had the ear of those who had votes. He could not get a single Republican on board and I could not get any enthusiasm among the Democrats. So it withered and died. Here, it would be meaningless. I think that's the same result here. I think the only two votes that it looked like it might have garnered were were, uh, Sue Collins and, uh, um, you know, and um, Murkowski, maybe Murkowski. But, you know, it really was it was going to be limited to Tim Kaine and, 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 and a very few others. There's no way that that would have carried the day. It seems like the institution as an institution prefers kind of an all or nothing exercise. They don't they don't seem to be interested in the complicating features in connection with impeachments of resolutions short of simply an up or down verdict. Well, here without that 14th Amendment sanction, which, by the way, would have been of dubious constitutionality, Bob. I think that's so I right. Don't know yeah, I, it, I think I agree. I don't that. know that's if it would. So it might have been an elegant uh, exit ramp um, because everybody could have claimed to have gotten what they wanted. But absent absent that 14th 
uh, amendment taking effect. I know all skullduggery listeners are authorities on the 14th Amendment, but I'll just parenthetically note that under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, um, you're disqualified uh, from office if you um, engage in insurrection. But under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, there needs to be proper implementation. And historically, when it was passed after the Civil War, you had um, statutes uh, that are no longer in effect that would implement it. It probably by itself, as part of a censure resolution, would have been a bill of attainder uh, and and ineffective. Anyhow, right. okay. we're we're not going down that rabbit hole. I'm going to seize back this podcast to ask a, <laughs> a, a, a journalistic question here. So we've got these two heavy hitter litigators, um, Norm and 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 Bob. Um, let's talk about the lawyering for a second. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, you know, everyone, all the cable chatter at least is about. Uh, Bruce Castor, the leadoff uh, uh, attorney uh, representing the president. Uh, I, I'm going to break in and say that was the worst legal argument I ever heard. It right, was well, a let's total see what, complete I'm, disaster. I'm not going to comment about that. I, I will just say this. It is never a good day in my experience, and I'm sure Norm would agree with it, when they're talking about you rather than the merits of your argument. <laughs> Well, there was no argument. That was the problem. In fact, I, before we even, I'm not even going to let Norm answer this because I know what he'll say, but but <laughs> we've actually got a clip of uh, of Castor speaking. Um, and, and, you know, the problem is he spoke first and he just was all over the place meandering, didn't speak to any of the issues on the table about the constitutionality. Instead, he ended up talking about listening to a record of Everett Dirksen. When I was growing up in uh, suburban Philadelphia, my parents were big fans of Senator Everett Dirksen from Illinois. And uh, Senator Dirksen recorded a series of lectures that my parents had on a record. We still know what records are, right? on the thing you put the needle down on and you play it. And uh, here's little Bruce, eight, nine, ten years old, listening to this back in the late 60s. And I would be listening to that voice. If you ever heard Everett Dirksen's voice, it's the most commanding, gravelly voice that just, just oozes belief and sincerity. Must have been a phenomenal United States Senator. Norm? Well, I have been in and outside of courtrooms since I got my first pre-law job in, must have been 1982, 1983, then worked as a civil rights organizer, went to court before law school. During law school, myself, tried cases, uh, and then since then, you know, was uh, I've been practicing law since I graduated in 1991. I racked my brain and could not think of a worse legal presentation that I have ever heard at any of those levels. Uh, perhaps there was one, and it's been eradicated from my memory. Certainly, that was the worst in a high stakes matter like this one. 
And whether or not it's true that they were so impressed with the House managers that they decided to switch things up so that Schoen could prepare a little more and edit his remarks, and Castor wanted to bleed the emotion out of the room, it doesn't matter. It was a total failure of preparation and uh, of uh, lawyering. Uh, it, It was the worst. It was literally the worst. The most important part about it is, you know who's to blame? It's not just Bruce Castor. It's President Trump because he has so alienated the Bob Rays of the world. Bob won't say one way or the other. No respectable lawyer will work with him anymore. He lost a perfectly good team in the middle of this trial prep. It's Trump's fault, but Castor was lousy. Um, here's my quick pop quiz for you guys and all Skullduggery listeners. Who had the worst day, Bruce Castor or Rod Pontone? Rod Pontone is the Texas lawyer in the cat video that is going viral <laughs> all over. He was in a legal argument, but somebody had changed the filters on his uh, Zoom, so it was he was showing up as a cat. Um, <laughs> you probably haven't seen that because you've been busy uh, today. I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. Yeah, check it Look, out. I, I mean, I, I wasn't overly impressed with the house manager's presentation. I'm, I'm sure that comes as Why no great surprise to uh, uh, to Norm or, 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 or to you, Mike. <laughs> I, I don't look if, if the best that they've got is going to be trial by video. And that's what this is going to be, because it's not likely to result in witnesses, since I don't think there's appetite on either side, just as was the case in the first impeachment trial. I think we're going to go through this with essentially alternate exchange and viewing of of, of video clips with um, little balloons about what the significance is of of what you're seeing. Um, I, I don't think that that's going to get you to the kind of proof necessary to actually uh, prove um, incitement to insurrection uh, sufficient to change sufficient minds among um, the the Republican caucus to result in a conviction here. So I, I just don't. So, I, I mean, I, I don't I, there's no appetite for this thing to go on longer, frankly, than this weekend or possibly early next week with closing arguments. And I don't think, you know, I, yes, I appreciate the interest in the quality of the lawyering. But at the end of the day, I don't think the lawyering is going to change the underlying dynamic, which is that the votes are not there. We knew the votes weren't there before the start of the trial. That's going to continue on through the end of this trial. And that's where we're going to be. It's going to be a second failed impeachment. Bob, uh, you're the only person on this podcast who's actually represented uh, President, uh, former President Trump. Can you give us a sense of uh, what it's like, what goes through your mind uh, before you uh, uh, get up there and, and make your arguments, knowing that this is a president that uh, watches and, and dissects um, and reacts to everything on, on, on television? Um, is that something that you think about that you have to push out of your mind um, when you're when you're um, uh, getting up there? Look, I was well aware that the president was watching. Um, I, I took comfort because I think I've publicly said this, so I don't think it's privileged any longer that the president said to me, um, you know, do what you think is right. Um, I, I didn't feel any pressure to have to adopt any particular uh, argument. If I didn't think it was an appropriate argument to make, the, the president was well familiar with what I had been saying leading up 
to impeachment before he uh, decided to ask me um, to participate in the first impeachment trial. Um, and, you know, there were some uncomfortable things, frankly, that normal remember that I did say uh, because I had said them before. Um, you know, I, I mean, the argument that I made to the Senate, which really, I think, gets to the heart of things, which is to understand who your audience is. My, the audience is not my client. The audience is persuading the persuadables in the United States Senate, the 100 people that are sitting before you. Um, and the argument there was to, frankly, you know, recognize and concede that not all of them were of the view, as the president was, that his call was perfect, which is what I said. I said, look, many of you may not view the, the president's call with regard to the Ukrainian president as perfect, which means he didn't agree with the president. But that didn't mean that you should you know, vote to convict the president. And the, the issue on the table was not ultimately about uh, conviction. Uh, and that's the other thing that, that a lawyer's job is, whatever your, your client you know, input is. Uh, the decisive objective in the first impeachment trial was the vote on whether or not to have witnesses. And, and on that question, uh, I was trying to speak to those senators that I needed to speak to within the Republican caucus that essentially held the votes as to whether or not that trial was going to get out of hand with witnesses or not. And once that vote uh, was decided, obviously, it was a foregone conclusion with regard to the result. That was the decisive. OK, so in the first impeachment trial. Well, that brings us to our my wrap up question, um, starting with Norm. Um, Looking forward through the week, um, uh, will we have witnesses in this trial? And um, what is your prediction about the final vote? Uh, well, we had the witnesses already today. They were brought in by video. Donald Trump and his damning words will meet another uh, important witness, I predict, Tomorrow, that's Brad Raffensperger, his conversation with Trump. There's on, the criminal on vid offense. On video or in person? Wait a minute. I'm getting to it. What kind of a podcast is this anyhow? <laughs> We're seizing back control. We've got, the, we've got the critical witnesses, these insurrectionists who understood perfectly well when Trump said 20 times to fight and when he said, you're not going to have a democracy if you don't fight for it. They understood what he meant, and they said so. They attacked when he said to attack. They admit you'll meet them on those witnesses will we, on my video. My question when was, he will we have stop, live witnesses? Will we have I live do not believe, I do not believe that uh, the final decision on live witnesses, which is a tough decision because it, it will prolong matters, and you know, none of us really wants to wallow any further in the era of Trump. Um, because we, uh, because it will prolong matters, I think the final decision on witnesses will be left for the closing of both cases after the questions from the Senate. And then the um, managers will, among other things, see whether they think they can get more Cassidy's today. They're up to six. Uh, GOP senators, if we'd have had that when I was fighting Bob, we would have had John Bolton and other witnesses. So um, uh, let's see how it goes. I don't think anybody has made up their mind yet, but Mike, it's in the resolution, okay? They didn't put it there not to have the option of using it. So let's, we'll see how things develop. Bob, wrap it up. I think it's unlikely that you'll see witnesses. I mean, obviously I can't speak and don't speak for the Senate. That'll be up to them. What I will say is that if the House managers choose to go down that road and they 
obviously will be able to do so if a majority of the Senate agrees. It does require a Senate vote on that. Um, once that is opened up, again, be careful what you ask for, because that is a politically dangerous place to be. You will have to afford equal time and opportunity to uh, former President Trump's defense team. This will prolong the trial. I don't see that anybody really believes that that's in the best interest of the country. And that is how it will be perceived. It will be judged according to the standard about whether or not this is really in the country's best interest. And the longer this goes on, it interferes with the current president's agenda. And it's certainly not the business of the country. There are too many other things to be concerned about. This is not one of them. I think the country is prepared to allow a certain amount of latitude here for a limited amount of time. If you open this thing up to witnesses, I believe the country will turn on this impeachment trial. Okay. Um, uh, I, I want to thank both of you guys. And we have a little treat to end the podcast. So if you can stick around for about 30 more seconds, uh, we played the clip of Bruce Castor in his meandering reference to Everett Dirksen. Um, so to close out, let's listen to that record that Bruce Castor was referring to. There have been men, brave, gallant men, who have died that others might be free. And even now, they do it still. Brave, gallant men. Know that someone was. <laughs> 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 All right. Gallant, gallant men. men. Gallant men. And he, okay. uh, he's gallant men and women. He uh, brought it up That's to modern times. And, and, uh, and thanks to our gallant him. guests. Yes. Uh, that, was, that was a killer. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Norm. Take care. Be well. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Tyrants must know. Now, just as then, they cannot stand, not as long as there are gallant men.